This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today we're going to be talking about NFTs. And we'll be talking with Joe Haig, uh, who is a litigator, or I should say maybe these days a former litigator, who's very focused on technology and NFTs in the art world. He's the founder of Henny, H-E-N-I, which is a tech company in the art world that has as its mission to make art accessible and enjoyable to everyone by using technology. And we're also joined by Luke Nikos, who's a partner at Quinn Emanuel in the New York office. And he is head of our art world practice, our art litigation practice, and is probably one of the foremost art litigators in the world. So Joe and Luke, thanks very much for joining us to talk about this very interesting subject of NFTs. We hear so much about NFTs these days, something that probably nobody knew what they were two years ago. And now today, people either think they know what they are or know they don't know what they are, but everybody's heard about NFTs. And maybe we could start with you, Joe, and, and perhaps you could just give us an explanation of what is an NFT? We all know now what it stands for, non-fungible token. And it's really something that exists on the blockchain, which um, you can own and um, thereby with your password um, seed phrase pass to other people as a sale. So it's really a means of owning something digitally. And there are several types of NFTs that have really come to prominence in the past year. It, started, it really kicked off with art. Um, but now uh, we're actually probably kicked off with either art or sporting NFTs through NBA top shots. And now there are other genres of NFT from music um, to potentially, um, I mean, uh, being able to use tickets for club membership or concerts. But so far, historically, it's been art, music, sports, um, and probably some other things I've missed out. But, you know, it's a digital ownership, really, on, on the blockchain. Well, what does that mean in practice, digital ownership on the blockchain? And how is a non-fungible token different than a, a fungible token? On the Bitcoin um, blockchain, all you can have are fungible tokens that are called Bitcoins. On the Ethereum blockchain, you can have things that are fungible called Ether, which is they're all the same. Or you can have things like smart contracts and non-fungible tokens where each one is unique can be unique because each image is unique or each one has a number. And so that's the real difference. It's literally in the word non-fungible. So they're all unique. They may be very similar, but they're different as opposed to crypto assets that are all essentially, they're not called this, but they're called, they are essentially fungible um, tokens. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> <laughs> so you say it's a, it's a form of ownership. How should we think about that? When you say it's a form of ownership and you talk about the blockchain, could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I've, you know, we're all lawyers on, on this podcast and it really raises questions what ownership is. And uh, for me, it's it just, you can prove that you own this little bit of code, this token on the blockchain. And that often refers to an external image or video that's stored somewhere else. And you've got the right through the control of it, through your passwords to be able to do things with it. There's normally only two or three things you can do with it. One is to transfer it to someone else. The other is to transfer it into some um, loan agreement, which is becoming more and more popular with NFTs, where people can actually pledge them um, against you know, loaning money and paying interest so they can be used. Um, but basically, it's ownership in that you can sell it or borrow against it. And there's another thing which isn't so legal in a sense. It's not a legal concept, but you can show off to the world. And that's quite important in the NFT world that you can brag about it. 
But ultimately, you can own this little video, which can also be on YouTube and available for everybody else in the world to enjoy. But you say you own it because you've got the right to um, transfer it to somebody else. Ownership, as I'm sure Luke will tell us, because he's an expert in, in intellectual property as well in this area, doesn't mean you own the IP right. Just like when you own a painting, it doesn't mean that you own you know, the copyright in the painting. So Luke, that raises the question, when you buy an NFT, what is it that you are getting? And, and how does that play out in terms of traditional intellectual property principles with things like copyrights and trademarks and the like? What is, what is it that you get? One of the biggest misconceptions about NFTs, and, and this I think arose out of some enormous publicity related to the $69 million sale of Beeple's artwork at Christie's minted through an NFT, is that the NFT is the artwork, for example. It is the image. It is whatever you're looking at on the screen. It is the video of the goal in the soccer game. But when you look at what an NFT actually is and think about it as a certificate of title almost, it is an evidence that you own something, then you can start to deconstruct what it is you're actually buying and what it is you're actually selling. And so if you buy an NFT, and the NFT reflects ownership of a physical artwork in the world or an interest in a physical artwork in the world, then you can actually take the artwork and own the artwork. And the NFT is like the certificate of title to show that you own it. Or if you buy a company and they transfer the shares in the company or the interest in the company through an NFT, then you actually own the interest in the company in the physical world, but the NFT in the metaverse reflects your ownership of that object. And so it really depends on what you're actually buying that's tied to the NFT that determines what rights you have and as the rights holder determines what you're selling. So an, and if I understand what you're saying, Luke, an NFT may be like a certificate of title as evidencing the fact that you own a physical work of art, or it may itself be the work of art that you own as evidenced on the blockchain, two different things. A absolutely. Or, 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 and to illustrate the breadth of possibilities that Joe is alluding to, you can sell, you can buy a physical artwork you can sell an NFT, a thousand of them, each of one, each of which reflects one one thousandth of an interest in that physical artwork. And so you can create ways to invest in physical objects, or you can sell a digital artwork through the NFT. The, the possibilities are, are really endless. Well, when you purchase an NFT, one of these images that, you know, we've all seen that, uh, you know, Bored Ape Yacht Club or Beep, the image that people sold at auction for over $60 million. Does the purchaser get an ownership interest in the copyright to, the, to that image? Usually they don't. Uh, usually the artist creates the image, whether it's a digital image, whether it's a physical image, uh, whether it's a video, whatever it might be that you're selling. And the artist transfers the right to display the video, display the digital artwork, whether in the metaverse or the physical universe, or display the actual physical artwork in the world. And the person who buys the NFT typically just buys the right to display. But we've started to see content creators uh, create opportunities for people to 
create evolving images. Bored Apes is a good example where the rights holder sells the actual NFT with the image and built into the smart contract allows people to modify the image in certain limited ways so that it evolves over time. And that traditionally is thought of as the right only of the copyright holder, but to get community investment and involvement, rights holders are creating these interesting opportunities for content creation beyond the original sale. Joe, have you seen some experience in the art world where NFTs have been sold that give rights to the purchaser uh, to do things to make, for example, derivative works or to multiply uh, uh, the artwork? Uh, create other examples of it, resell it. Is all that possible? Yeah, all that's possible. And Luke, a lot of what Luke alludes to is kind of theoretically possible, but it hasn't been done, especially insofar as the NFTs correspond to a physical asset. And the reason for that, I'm sure we'll come to in this podcast, is to do with securities law. But um, in terms of copyright, Luke's absolutely right. There is this, um, generally, the NFT publisher or the author allows the buyer to, to to use for personal use and not to commercially exploit but there are and, and this is a but this has become a bit of a problem in the nft world so you take one of the greatest projects ever the crypto punks um which retained the copyright in the little crypto punks and then you take another project like board apes which has allowed the purchasers to use the board apes now this may not seem a big deal to you and me john or to luke but in reality a lot of the people that buy nfts also use them as what they call PFPs, personal profile pictures. So they become totally associated with them and they use them as their little handles on Twitter and on social media. And so many people were slightly disillusioned with them, you know, when they can't own, they feel it becomes their own image and they can't necessarily use it or exploit it. So this is a big, a big debate. But the point that Luke mentions, a big source of upset for many people is, you know, it hasn't, Yet it's quite clear that you could use NFTs to prove ownership in an asset or a fractional ownership. But the big subject that everyone's petrified about in the um, NFT space is whether it becomes a security and all those issues. And so far, um, that's why there haven't been many fractionalization projects. There's been one or two that have been attempted and tried to circumvent the, uh, the securities law, but there's been nothing um, significant that's really taken off yet. And in the art world, it hasn't really happened. It's easier if it doesn't represent a fraction of, a, of an asset. But if it's really a receipt for an asset, it's arguably less problematical. But it hasn't really. Most of the NFTs in the art world are straightforward NFTs of art images that you're buying and selling without the complexities of um, you know, an NFT representing ownership in something else outside of that image. Well, let's get to uh, regulatory and uh, uh, securities issues in particular in just a moment. But you say there's some disappointment sometimes on the part of NFT purchasers that they don't realize what rights they have or what rights they don't have. Um, how would a purchaser know? And wh where are these rights embodied? Are there some, is the equivalent of a shrink rack license or terms of service or something? If you're buying something and you want to know what exactly, what intellectual property rights am I getting when I purchase this NFT? Is there some place you can go to to learn that? And normally, when you buy it and when off the site, there will be a terms of service which you you know you agree to as part of the purchase of the you know the issuance of the NFT. I think it might get more complicated um, on secondary market um, cases where people can forget what the original terms were that were binding that. But normally, there's you know terms of service which you agree to when you buy what you're buying. You know? And I think part of the issue. John, is that there are two layers 
oftentimes between the buyer and the original rights holder. So let's say you buy an NFT uh, on OpenSea or another platform, and you look to the smart contract, you look to see, you know, you're the diligent buyer, you look to see what it is you're buying and you're comfortable that the terms of the transaction are what you really wanna buy and what you think you're buying. But it turns out that the person who minted that NFT tied to that image or artwork doesn't actually own the rights that they've described in the smart contract because they're actually owned by the original artist who never transferred the copyright. And actually breaking through that first layer to the second layer to see if the original rights holder transferred any rights on the blockchain is oftentimes impossible because that first transaction likely didn't take place on the blockchain. It would have taken place in the physical world. And so there's real, there's a real problem of transparency and peeking behind the NFT to ensure that the rights you're getting in, under the smart contract are rights that person have the ability to transfer. And we've actually seen cases uh, in our firm where that's happened. Someone minted an NFT, the NFT described the asset with specificity. And if you were buying that NFT, you'd feel comfortable that the NFT reflects the rights you want, but it turned out the person who minted the NFT did not have the right to mint the NFT reflecting ownership of those rights because they weren't owned by that person. Yeah, I mean, you've had litigation like that and there's been some relatively famous litigation on these subjects from Miramax suing Tarantino, whatever, I don't know what the outcome of that's going to be from Hermes suing somebody who calls himself Maison Rothschilds for creating Meta Birkin handbags. Um, so there's quite a, and you know, Luke is right. You know, you might think you bought it, and then, and then the other thing that law firms are going to be doing is writing letters to OpenSea, which is the main platform where 98% of NFTs are, uh, are traded, really. And you have takedown notices, and once that happens, you're really screwed because you bought something on OpenSea, and then you can't trade on it, and that's a devastating thing. And really, it's not so difficult to get OpenSea to take things down if you've got reasonable claim to the. Um, to the copyright so that can be quite devastating for the person who's bought it and that's going to be an area which i'm sure luke's already experiencing as an area of um, potential legal problems and issues it's luke what and sorts of claims do you see arising out of uh sales of of, of exchanges on open sea and elsewhere what types of claims in terms of takedown notices and and people basically nfts being orphaned if they're if they're taken down the, the, the primary areas we see are trademark and copyright right now. The, the Meta Birkin is a, is a good example where an artist created an image of an Hermes Birkin bag, called it the Meta Birkin, and is minting and selling NFTs that reflect the images connected to the bag. And Hermes filed a lawsuit, trademark lawsuit, in claiming that the rights to the bag, the bag design, are trademark rights that only Hermes owns and therefore the artist had no right to create the images. We're seeing a lot of claims like that. We're seeing claims where artists take uh, images of someone else's artwork and create a, a derivative work of that artwork and then mint an NFT pointing to that image and then they purport to sell that. So we're looking at primarily trademark and copyright. There have been uh, the start of some claims related to authenticity, where an artist uh, sells an NFT tied to a digital image and says, this digital image was created by me and another artist. And it turns out the other artist had no involvement. 
in the NFT as it was represented. And so you've got traditional authenticity issues that are finding their way uh, into the metaverse as well. There was also a recent case, and I haven't, it was only a few days ago, and I'm not, I haven't really got to the bottom of it, where StockX, as you know, they trade in sneakers or allow people to trade in sneakers. And um, they were trying to come up with a system where people didn't actually have to take the sneakers out of the vault and they could just have an NFT about those sneakers and um, then trade the NFT, which is a very efficient means of trading because you don't have the issues of, um, you know, shipping these things around. Um, that, may, that may have all sorts of other regulatory issues. But I think two or three days ago, they were sued by Nike because the NFTs um, obviously were images of the shoes and looked like the shoes. And therefore, there's a, a copyright or trademark infringement in that little NFT. And that's a you know a really interesting case because the, those NFTs really represented ownership in a pair of shoes rather than ownership in anything else. And that, I think, is going to be quite an interesting case. There'll be more of that. You've read about that case, I assume, Luke. Yeah. It, it, yeah and the interesting thing about that case, it, it really talks about... again, the breadth of opportunity for NFTs. So it's in part a traditional trademark claim where StockX buys an inventory of sneakers, mints an NFT that reflects ownership of a specific pair of shoes, and then allows the owners to post the image of the shoe tied to the NFT in their portfolio of shoe collections. So you might think that's a traditional first sale doctrine, first sale trademark exhaustion. You're allowed to do it. You can buy a pair of shoes. You can take a picture of an actual pair of shoes posted on your website, and that's fine. You should be able to do that with the NFT world. But as Joe just described, there's an experiential component, a different engagement with the company where the shoes stay in the vault. You don't actually get physical possession. And at the end, StockX has the right to say, we're not going to redeem the shoes to you, instead, you're gonna get an experience with our company of some kind that reflects the value or has the same value as the NFT. And so it's a real question of what is being sold here? Is it the physical shoes? You can do that. Nike doesn't have the right to restrict the market in shoe sales. Once they sell the shoe, it's out of their control, but there's more to the program that you're buying into with StockX. And it's gonna be an interesting question to, to see what that really means and whether it's allowed under the trademark laws. Fascinating. Presumably all that is laid out in the terms of service when you buy the NFT, it, whatever you're buying. It, it, it's all laid out, it's transparent. And, and they also make it clear that Nike's not involved in, in <laughs> any of the marketing or, or, or the, the program. So. It, it'll be an interesting use of a sort of dual purpose NFT uh, to figure out whether the copyright, the copyright laws, the trademark laws prohibit it. Joe, you made reference to the fact that the NFT and the digital asset that it represents are typically stored at different locations. The NFT itself, for various reasons, typically doesn't appear, at least on the Ethereum blockchain. As I understand, it's, it's just too expensive to do that. It takes up too much Uh, too much digital space. Does that fact that the NFT is one place and the digital asset is someplace, presumably connected by some link, uh, also raise issues concerning, you know, permanence, authenticity, uh, and the like? Okay, you're right to point that out, John. It clearly does. The NFT is on the blockchain, on Ethereum normally, or another blockchain, and it points to uh, normally an IPFS server where the digital images or video is and clearly if that link went down and this is an issue normally it doesn't go down but people are worried about it because the blockchain is immutable 
um, I think the issuer or the person who published it might theoretically be liable because they, you've lost the link to what you've, the image to what you've bought. Your, your title is on the blockchain, but the image which you can enjoy and show off about is somewhere else and is no longer, is no longer so that's clearly a, an area. Uh, I'm sure it has gone down, I'm sure sometimes, but this may well be an area in the future for potential liability too. It does create another area of NFTs in the attempt to be independent of external servers and um, where you put the information on the blockchain and it's called on-chain and that can only be done if there's not much data on there. So for example, rather complicated, what they call generative art is normally done on chain where it can all be done in a code and you just run the code and then you get the image and that can fit on the chain, but other kinds of art, you know, can't. Uh, I mean, it raises a number of questions. If, if whatever the, uh, internet address that where the actual digital asset the image is stored whoever whatever service is supporting that if they go out of business if they lose it if they're hacked and that link is broken then your nft is essentially gone forever yeah i mean theoretically it is you still got the nft but it doesn't link up to an, an image you Often, can't find it. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like the laptop with the Bitcoin that somebody lost in a in a rubbish rubbish heap somewhere in the UK. Yeah, that's right. So that is the issue. The IPFS is is in a way a decentralized place too, where there's um, lots of people keeping this keeping this service alive in the true spirit of crypto in a decentralized way. But ultimately there needs to be a server, probably is a server behind somebody who's putting it out there. So it could go down. You're right. And that is a problem. It could go down, it could be, and presumably can be hacked. It could be, yeah. It's rare that it happens, and I think it's hard for it to happen because of the decentralized nature, but there is that fear and possibility that, you know, the image that you've bought is, is no longer available in the place you thought it was. <laughs> Legally, I don't know if you've still got the ownership of something, but the image has moved somewhere else. Right. right. <laughs> the ownership still has value, even though the link it's pointing to doesn't exist. These are all questions we've yet to see, you know, determine. Floating and around think- in the metaverse somewhere. Luke, you were going to say. Yeah, and I think when, when you come back to center and you ask, what is the core value of an NFT? What is it that we are buying into? It's this immutable form and evidence of ownership that is so important to the survival and to the value of the entire enterprise. And if you can separate out, and if this does become a real risk, separate the evidence of ownership from the thing being owned, the thing that, you, that you're buying, then that creates real liability risk on the front end from the people selling and real risk to the purchasers. And part of it is, we're gonna, are we going to price this into the values of the transactions? There's always, there's always risk of transactions, so we price it in. But then in the physical world, it's easier typically to recover, to find the physical thing, and then you can sort out ownership disputes in court. But if you can't find the physical, the, the physical thing because it's in the digital world and it's tied to an image that's no longer tied to the NFT, then we're going to have real issues of, of litigation that are going to be difficult to solve without clear precedent in our courts. Well, in this discussion, we've identified a number of different legal risks associated with NFTs, but I mean, after all, uh, thus far, the NFT marketplace seems to be thriving and seems by and large to function pretty well. But if somebody wanted to be careful in, uh, about what they were buying and wanted to get some uh, comfort about security, um, immutability, authenticity, 
that they were buying, uh, that whoever was selling to them had the rights that they had. Is there any way that a, a potential buyer can conduct any due diligence, as it were? What, what are the sorts of things a buyer can do if they want to get some comfort? Well, I mean, you go to a reputable publisher of, of LFT, but often on OpenSea, there is a blue tick that means they've been approved by OpenSea. That's a little extra piece of um, support, a bit like on Instagram, you know, so it's an, an authorized account. So you do get a little bit more support from that. But frankly, most of the people in the space aren't looking around for due diligence. It's really the, <laughs> the wild <laughs> web. And if yeah. you're in it, you probably don't have the mentality of um, trying to do really extensive due diligence. I think that the, the common sense, if it's too good to be true, it probably is framework, applies pretty well. You've read your smart contract. You've looked at the representations about what you're buying. You feel comfortable with that. And, and then you ask yourself, am I actually buying an NFT for $5,000 that reflects ownership of a $20 million Andy Warhol painting, you probably aren't. Uh, and so <laughs> when, when, you, when you look at what the transaction is about, I'd say apply the same type of skepticism that you'd apply in the real world to figure out as best you can, whether you're likely to get the terms on this kind of transaction at the price you're paying. The most losses that I've seen, John, aren't because of a lack of awareness or due diligence about what they're buying. It's just because the market moves a lot and they go up and down and there's all sorts of, you know, pump and volatility. Dump. Yeah, volatility. And the other category of loss, which people are aware, which is, um, which happens a lot, is hacking, you know, because if somebody gets into your computer and can access your seed phrase, which controls your wallet and thereby the NFTs in it, this happens, I'm afraid, quite frequently. And so that's a bigger risk than buying something that isn't authentic is relatively small chance compared to the chances of losing your money in the roller coaster of the markets and or you know just being hacked we referenced earlier uh, potential regulatory issues and in particular securitization and can nfts be securities which would mean at least under us law under the uh, securities act of 1933 they would have to be registered with the securities exchange commission if they don't come within some exemption under the traditional test, uh, the Howey case, uh, something an investment contract is a is a security if it's an investment made with the prospect of with the anticipation of profit based upon the efforts of others. I think that's that's kind of the hornbook, black letter definition of what a security is. But I think the commission and, and lawyers generally are struggling to figure out how, if at all, these apply, that test applies to digital assets and to NFTs in particular. Do you have any thoughts on that, Luke? I do. I think the, the, the framework that we have in, in the physical world is, is one we should start with. So if you're buying, for example, a, a fractionalized interest in a work of art, or if you're buying shares of a company, then we all know those are likely to be found as securities regulated uh, by the state and, and federal governments. When you transfer that into the, the metaverse and we deconstruct the transactions, if you're buying an NFT and the NFT says, you're going to own a percentage of a particular physical artwork, or you're going to own a percentage of a company, 
or, or some other interest. And ultimately your expectation is that you'll be paid out based on the sale of the artwork or the sale of the company or the company's revenues, then we have a pretty decent framework for figuring out whether that NFT is likely to be found as a security. And obviously, as we start to expand the components of the NFT, we've, we've talked about sale of physical assets tied to experiences. There are also these decentralized autonomous organizations where you can buy an NFT, your NFT gives you a vote in a metaverse type organization. And that organization can, can go do things in the world and generate revenue that spins off profit to the NFT holders. You, you have these dual form NFTs that have in part a component that doesn't feel like a security and in part a component that does. And so those are going to be the tougher cases that we really need to look at. But the, the, there are a lot of simpler cases that I've seen in NFT sales where we can pretty readily categorize them as security sales or not based on our existing framework. Are you aware of any enforcement actions the SEC has taken with respect to NFTs and the, the issue of whether they are securities? I, I haven't seen any yet other than some, uh, some comments by some SEC members that if you're fractionalizing, then that seems to be uh, something that they'd look at as a security. And so I, I think they, they are starting to think about this carefully, but they haven't gotten to a place where they have standards that they can apply outside of the existing framework. And, and frankly, if you look at comparable markets that have existed in the physical world for a very long time, the art market, for example, and you ask what kind of regulations have been applied in those areas, and which are oftentimes more opaque, given the fact that the transactions aren't transparent, aren't on the blockchain, oftentimes between multiple layers, not publicly reported. We learned just last week that the Treasury Department is does not think regulation of the art world for money laundering or other connected purposes is relatively appropriate or, or necessary at this time. And so I think we're going to see uh, a long stretch of time before we get significant SEC guidance on this area. You see comments about, about whether there's a potential for money laundering, whether NFTs can be used as a substitute for currency and therefore should be subject to regulation by FinCEN. That's you know one issue. Another issue is when you're dealing with a smart contract, you know, your counterparty is some unknown party on a smart contract where you really don't have the ability to do any KYC, that is know your customer, don't know who you're dealing with. People wonder about the potential that, you know, could there be liability uh, for dealing, you know, under OFAC, not getting a, a permit under OFAC, for dealing with a counterparty that might be on a sanctions list, uh, these are issues that we see raised. Do you have any thoughts about the applications of money laundering or OFAC sanctioned, dealing with OFAC sanctioned parties uh, when you don't know who your counterparty is and what risks those might implicate? We, we've started to see uh, focus on that in, in the auction houses as they've started to expand uh, their traditional offerings into NFTs. Uh, whether it's auction houses that sell luxury goods generally or or art focused. And that that's traditionally been uh, a significant source of diligence. The, the auction houses really pay close attention to who's on both sides of their transactions and, and look deep. And, and this is going to present problems because the crypto wallets are, are anonymous. Uh, some platforms have banned 
transactions that arise out of countries, for example, that are more likely to promote money laundering or terrorist financing. And so th this is going to present a, a diligence quagmire for people involved in these transactions and companies involved in these transactions. There, there's, no, there's no clear answer yet, given the anonymity and, and the barriers to learning more about who's involved in these transfers. Well, Luke, Joe, this has been uh, fascinating. Any uh, final remarks or uh, reflections on the subject of NFTs and their implications for the legal world? I think the, the only thing I'd add is we've talked a lot about the acquisition side of the NFT transaction. And going back to Joe's point that this is really about ownership and what does that mean? Uh, one of the things it means is that not only can you exclude people from the actual property, but you can capture potentially, if you do it right as a rights holder, you can capture more of the economic value of what you're creating through resale royalties and through content creation that you wouldn't otherwise have a distribution channel for. And so I think it's really important for rights holders to police the various platforms to use social media scraping, to scrape the platforms and figure out who's using their images, who is creating derivatives so that they can start to get a handle on what weaknesses they have in their own brand protection and own IP protection. Because if you don't take advantage of all of the tools to see the transactions that are out there as a rights holder that could dilute your brand, then you're not going to be able to take full advantage of this platform economically. Yeah, you, you referenced the ability to program, the ability to uh, get royalties on resales in the smart contract, uh, which is really fascinating and not something that really would, and theoretically, you could do that in the physical world, but the smart contract in the, in the digital world, you can actually track every sale and make sure no sale gets closed without that royalty being paid. That's a fascinating benefit for the right seller. Uh, our artists have been trying to do this for years through legislation uh, at the state level, and they've been largely unsuccessful. And so to be able to capture that economic value through an NFT provides a considerable source of revenue all the way down the transaction line for artists. But, but the point is, if, if you've created something and someone else is out minting NFTs that invade your brand space, that dilute your brand, that dis divert customers from your transactions, and you're not taking steps to protect yourself against that, then, then the value of the resale royalty, the overall value of what, what you're doing, your enterprise goes down. And so from the rights holder standpoint, this is e an even greater economic opportunity to create value and expand your business revenue and your business lines, but, but you've got to pay attention to other people who could compromise that. Thanks, Luke. Joe, any final remarks? I would say that this really is a fantastic revolution and the law is way behind where the crypto people are and where the NFT place is. And one of the problems we have is we're trying to apply law that doesn't really easily apply to this situation. Now, one can say, well, it does apply. We can apply by parallel and by extension and by analogy. That's why it's so confusing for lawyers and clients to really um, get to the bottom of what might happen here and the areas where the law touches on. We've we've summarized it in this um, you know in this podcast, but it comes it covers 
DAOs to securities law and within securities law, there's the matters of issuance, there's marketplaces, there's market manipulation, there's potential influencers being used. It's a huge area. There's the IP area. And there's another area we haven't touched upon is the taxes and sales taxes and KYC, because fundamentally, the whole of crypto and NFT was born out of a revolution against the establishment and against um, central bodies and institutions telling people and controlling people what to do. It's meant to be decentralized. This is why Bitcoin was created and after it, Ethereum. And, you know, one of the, um, you know, the fundamental principles of NFTs and crypto is the decentralized nature of it and how people can hide in a way and have wallets. It's in a way it's all open, but another way it's all rather opaque because you don't know who's behind everything. And that tension is going to really um, create all sorts of problems for regulators and users and, and it's going to be a legal minefield but having said that this is really changing the world this is like the railroads coming in in, in in the 1830s and 40s it's a fundamental structural shift to our you know to our society and I think we're just gonna have to watch it unfold it's I think it's a very exciting thing I think it's a great thing it's fascinating absolutely fascinating Luke and Joe, thank you very much for this very enjoyable and interesting discussion. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by Podcast Partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.